And as we go into Acts chapter 20, we left our, our dear brother Paul uh, in the middle of a riot in Ephesus. Uh, and as we saw, Satan conspired to get the Ephesians to riot against them because they were upset because the uh, uh, Diana, the, the uh, goddess Diana, in their mind was being undermined. Now that people had become Christians, they weren't interested in buying statues. And the economy was threatened. And a massive riot took place. 25,000 people rushed into the stadium. Uh, and it's, it, it's horrible and they want blood. And yet somehow God intervenes and quiets the mob. And Paul, even though Paul, as Paul is always ready to step forward and go in and speak to the mob, he was prevailed not to do it. He was prevailed upon not to do it. And so now he leaves Ephesus and he's going back into the churches in Greece, in northern Greece. And in fact, he will actually, in this next part of his trip, he will actually make it to what is what was modern Yugoslavia. Uh, and so all those countries that comprise Yugoslavia, you know, uh, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Croatia, Montenegro, Serbia, Slovenia, he will be in those areas now. That's actually where he will be. Uh, and as, so he's spreading the gospel. So he's going back, encouraging the people in the churches that he helped to found with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, going back and spreading the word. So let's, and what you're going to see in this lesson, this is going to give you an insight into how they worshipped in the first century church. So many of you say to me, I wish we could be like a first century church. I'd like to be like a first century Christian. I'd like to go through that. Well, we're going to see. We're going to see a first century church. So beginning with Acts chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, and the uproar meaning Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia, which is effectively northern Greece and the Yugoslavia area. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months, parens, in Greece is where he wrote, in this area right here is where he wrote Romans. Because the Jews made a plot against him, and do they ever stop? Do they ever rest? Does Satan ever cease? No. Never. Ever. Ever. Because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. The plot was they were going to assassinate him on board. And he learned about it. He was accompanied by Spatter, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, Antichius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Do I get a prize for saying those names? <laughs> Only took three weeks of practice. Appreciate you acknowledging that. But you know what I like about this? For those of you who want to know about the accuracy of our brother Luke, do you have any doubt that this guy was accurate? Not only does he tell you where we're going, he gives you a travel log. These are the guys who were with him. And these guys really, you know, other than Timothy, you're not going to hear about any of these guys. These aren't famous apostles. But he's giving you a historical account that you can rely on. This is why... Luke's work is so outstanding. This is why you can take this to the bank, uh, not just as a great spiritual work, but as a historical work. 
Uh, and so uh, it's just first-class work. Uh, these men, verse 5, These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now we're going to see a first-century church in worship. Verse 7, On the first day of the week, Sunday, Sunday, the first day of the week, Sunday. When did Christians worship? Sunday. When were they worshiping in the first century? Sunday. They didn't worship on Saturday. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. They worshiped on Sunday, okay? And why did they worship on Sunday? They worshiped on Sunday because it was referred to as the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, meaning the day uh, Jesus was resurrected, Sunday. Also on Sunday, Pentecost fell on Sunday, okay? And so what you find out here, and this is important, the uh, early on, the first century church was worshiping um, early on, right from the beginning, on Sunday. Turn, if you would, just to demonstrate this issue to you very quickly, 1 Corinthians Chapter 16, <clears throat> verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, to, I, when I come no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Again, on the first day of the week. So this is important for you to understand because Sunday was not a holiday. Saturday was a holiday. Nobody worked on Saturday. The Christians then on Sunday worked all day. They worked all day and then went to church at night. This is kind of interesting to understand how the dynamic of this is. And, it, and in some way it explains what's about to take place here. And this, so imagine you're working all day, working hard. Then typically with a service, they would go to someone's house and they would have a potluck dinner. First Baptist Macedonia. You Baptists could sign right on with that, right? Potluck dinner. Then they, then they would uh, have communion, and they would have communion every week. Once a week, they would have communion, and then they would worship, and they would worship in somebody's house. So I want you to get a sense of this whole dynamic. And so on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Breaking bread there means both potluck dinner, but also to have communion. Sp Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Now, are you going to be the guy in the congregation that's going to say to Paul, it's enough. You spoke enough. You know, it's midnight. I don't think you are. And I want to be fair to him because obviously they had dinner and they had communion. And probably by the time he started speaking, it probably was eight or nine o'clock. 
because it was late. And now he's speaking, and he's speaking, and it's going to be basically a valedictory sermon. He doesn't believe he'll ever see these people again. He has a lot to tell them about, a lot to warn them about. And so it's getting near midnight. You're on the third floor. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Well, why do you think he's telling you there were many lamps? It's night. And the oxygen level in the room is being depleted. Okay? I want you to understand this. Just think about this. The oxygen level in the room is being depleted. Verse 9, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. Now, in Greek, in Greek, Eutychus means fortunate. <laughs> For those of you who have read ahead, you will know that that was a well-apt name, fortunate. Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I love the way they've written this. So poor Eutychus is obviously, he worked and he's tired. He's this, it's hot. He's so he's seating He's seated at a window. He's trying to get air. And Paul is still preaching away. And he's preaching away. And so I want you to get this sense. Eutychus falls into a deep sleep. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. I want you to get an image of what's going on in this church in this service and the power of the Holy Spirit this guy's seated at a window he falls asleep falls over backwards most likely falls three stories probably breaks his neck he's dead it's confirmed he's dead you can just see everybody in the service must have all rushed down the steps and it must have been a horrendous horrendous scene but look at the power of the Holy Spirit when you see what goes on here Verse 10, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Now, the last time you saw something like that in the Bible was Elisha and Elijah, right? Both times, all right? One with a widow with Elijah, one with the Shunammite, in which uh, Elisha actually got on top of the corpse of her son, put his lips right on him, and basically breathed life back into him, effectively Paul is there on this boy, laying down on the boy, picked him, put his arms around him, and says these amazing words, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Can you imagine the testimony? Can you imagine the, the power of the Holy Spirit in this place? He's alive. And then what I love, I love about Paul, just think about it. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? I've just raised somebody from the dead, the entire church is all downstairs on the first floor. What does Paul do? No problem. He went back upstairs again, broke bread, and ate. And continued to preach. You've got to love this guy. The power and fire of the Holy Spirit was so dynamic in him that he wasn't going to be stopped by anything. He wasn't afraid of dying. He wasn't afraid of being stoned or persecutions. It didn't matter what came his way. He was not going to be stopped. And what an example to us of a powerful Christian life. And so continuing on, after talking until uh, daylight, he left. 
the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Can you believe this? What I want to focus on now also, though, is on the nature of the service itself. Why were these services so powerful? What was so special about these services? And what do they have in these services that maybe today in a lot of the churches in this country are lacking? Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 4. Verse 13, and you remember here, Timothy was placed in charge of the churches in Ephesus by Paul when Paul left. And so he's writing to Timothy, who was a much younger man, and instructing him. And listen what he says about the nature of the services, of how to have the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in a church and in the lives of people. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and to teaching do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you in other words mm, this isn't some outreach program we don't have some committees we're going to meet about okay we're not going to read the latest book self-help book what are we going to do we're going to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. And if you want to know effectively what powers a church, if you want to see a power church, a, a Bible church, a church like this church, it's because you can go in there and hear that being preached, what you heard today. The emphasis on the, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what a, what a privilege it is for us to be able to be in a church like that. And it's not like that. It's not like that in many churches in America and if you wonder why churches are eroding and people are falling away, that's why. So continuing on with verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Essos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Essos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Again, port by port by port. And when they go back, when the archaeologist, William Ramsey, went back uh, in the late 1800s to, to basically prove that Luke was written by somebody three centuries or four centuries later than when it was supposed to be written, when he went back and actually plotted these places, he found that these places didn't exist several centuries after Christ that they only existed at the time that Luke was there. And the, and the very uh, uh, essence of language that Luke used was for that period of time. And so it's all being written from you to you from a perspective that you can take it to the bank. I mean, wh this is why this is so fantastic. You'll come to me and you'll say, well, why is that important? It is important. It's important for people in the world to know. This is historically accurate. We're not reading fables. This is historically accurate. Paul had decided, verse 16, to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Why did he want to get back to Jerusalem? Because he was carrying donations for the poor in Jerusalem, the saints who were suffering from famines, from persecutions, and he had gathered money from the various churches and was going to deliver it, so he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. 
and also, he was in a hurry because from Jerusalem he intended to go to Rome. And so this was, was on his mind. And so he knew that if he stayed, went to Ephesus directly, he would get delayed and he'd be involved because people wanted to see him. And so instead, he bypassed Ephesus and told the elders, the brothers of the church, the leaders of the church to meet him, to meet him uh, and where he would speak to them. And so they traveled 30 miles to meet Paul and to talk to them. And so that's effectively where we are in verse 17. For Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came in to the province of Asia. This is an important message. He's going to deliver a message to the church in Ephesus through the leaders of that church in which he's going to focus on the past, the present, and the future. He's going to give them the background of what brought him to that church, what God did while he was there, and what problems they would face in the future. And I'm going to tell you when we listen and we study this, you're going to see that there are lessons for us today in our church. And when I say our church, I don't mean First Baptist Naples. I mean the worldwide church of God. All right? Let's never confuse our denomination for being the exclusive work of God. The work of God transcends denominations. It, is, it transcends country lines. It's the entire world as we stand up for Jesus Christ in all denominations, in all countries. And so the entire work of God, church of God, is under attack by Satan. And that's what we're going to see here. And so he says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Humility and tears. Do you want to see somebody who is truly being used by God? You will see a humble person. You will not see a person who will raise themselves up and seek self-glorification. You will not see that. And when you see that, when you see somebody that, that promotes themselves with great ambition, pretty much you can take to the bank, this is not a work of God. And I mean that. You could see it all day long if you turn on television and you look and you see people who are promoting themselves and advancing themselves and effectively making money. And you know we see it all day long. You know that there are all these, these televangelists out there who are promoting and seeking money and live in these very lavish lifestyles. I mean, is that the work of God? Really? Look at how he lived here. He says, you saw how I served him with humility and with tears, even though I was under daily attack. That's what God, how God wants us to serve. He wants us to be humble. And so he now continues on saying that, I served with great humility. Uh, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. That's how the advancement was made in those times. Church was in house. He went house to house. Services were conducted house to house. The gospel was advanced house to house. And that's what he did advancing the gospel of our, our Lord Jesus. Um, and continuing on, I have not hesitated to teach you everything, and I taught you publicly. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. If you want to understand in one sentence what is salvation, he has given it to you there, I would underline this. 
okay? Because you understand, a lot of times today, you know, you hear people talk about, well, you have to have faith in Jesus. You have to have faith in Jesus. You see what he said? It's not just faith in Jesus. It's repentance and faith in Jesus. Turn to God in repentance. In order to have true salvation, what you must first have is a broken heart. You must look in your heart and look in your so inside of you and see iniquity and ask God, ask God to address and forgive the iniquity, to understand that you're a sinner. You cannot, you cannot have salvation unless you first turn in repentance. And that was the message in one sentence. That's the one sentence. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus, meaning accept Jesus Christ in the fullest sense of the word. Understand that he is the creator, the alpha and the omega. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. He transcends life. He created life. And that in him, you are turning your life over and saying to him, Lord Jesus, take control of my life. Be the captain of this ship. I put everything before you. I will make my body a living sacrifice for you, Lord Jesus. That's the essence of the Christian message. And this is exactly what he's preaching here to the uh, elders of the church of Ephesus. And he continues on. And now, verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. Do you understand what it means to say I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit? It means that there is a weight on you that you have no choice, that God is leading you to do something for his kingdom. And I will, I will say to you, and I hope you do this, that you ask God, you pray for God, to God to lead you, to direct you as to what he wants in your life. Ask him for that prayer. And when you make that prayer, honestly, God will lead you and you will be, feel a compulsion. You may not understand it. You may not know how it works, but you will actually feel compelled to do something for the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what's going on. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Imagine me. Imagine that. What do I know? I know the Holy Spirit has told me I'm going to prison. And I know the Holy Spirit has warned me I'm going to face persecution and hardship. But you know what? Do I, do I count my life worth more than the vision that Jesus Christ gave me on the road to Damascus? Do I count my life more than the direction that Jesus gave to me personally when he directed me to be the apostle to the Gentiles? No. No. And why is that? Because he had a vision of Jesus. And when we have a vision of Jesus in our heart and in our life, when we actually see the Lord, then a lot of the things that would have attracted you before don't attract you anymore. A lot of the places that would have attracted you before don't attract you anymore. A lot of the relationships that you would have been drawn to before don't attract you anymore because now you see Jesus. And it's Jesus that directs your life and Jesus who tells you what to do. Jesus who will say, Go to Jerusalem, face prison, face the hardships because you will do it for me. And you see this great apostle. Yes, sister.
Okay, good question. When you find the Lord at a young age and you're not aware of the sin in your life, how do you address that? I would call that, I would put that under the doctrine of sanctification. Okay? If you are truly saved, and we start with that, meaning are you truly saved? Have you truly had an, uh, an experience with God? And remember, uh, for many of us, uh, some of us grew up in, in certain organized religions in which we participated in events uh, that are age appropriate, if you know what I mean. In other words, catechism, uh, we go through it at a certain period of time, or baptisms, we go through a certain period of time. And for some of us, we did it because we were part of a large group of people. It was socially acceptable to do that, and we did it. I'm not saying people, all people are not saved. I'm saying that for some of us, we may have done these things without truly understanding the nature of what we were doing. And here's the issue. Salvation is this. Lips, heart. Lips, heart. Lips, confessing. Heart, transforming your life, giving it to Jesus. And so what does this mean? I could, I could testify for myself, and I think it would be a good answer for you. I was born and raised in a godly home. I was involved in church my whole life. I was, I was saved at an early age. In many ways, the testimony of that young man today was the testimony of my family. Very similar testimony. Mother and father constantly in church, constantly in church. But I had determined early on that God didn't want me, call me to what I would call a frontier position. I believe that God expected me in, a, in what I would call a support position. All right? A support position, meaning I would support others that would be in the faith, that God didn't give me the gifts of preaching or teaching. I, I really truly believe this. I'm not trying to be humble, I'm telling you the truth. And then about 10, 11 years ago in this very church, as God was working in my life, I was saved, was working in my life, uh, and I was reflecting on what God wanted to do with the second half of my life. Uh, I'd recently turned 50 years old. And I was thinking about what did God expect of me. I sat in this church 45 minutes before service, just sitting there contemplating. We didn't even start music practice yet. And in this empty church, 45 minutes before, with 2,000 empty seats, a woman comes in with a special needs teenager who comes in and sits, and I'm sitting about one-third of the way back, comes back and sits behind me in that church service. And when I saw the, the, this poor handicapped teenager and this woman, I, my heart went out and I said, oh, these poor people, this poor person has a handicap. Uh, and I've been blessed by God. I have a child. I don't have these handicaps. And God, I'm not worthy. And I was just reflecting on God, on the blessings of God in my life and that I wasn't worthy. And the woman came over and said to this, other, to this lady, we have a Sunday school here for special needs people. Uh, and this woman said, well, my daughter is a Christian. And with that, this teenager turned around and said to this woman, oh, yes, I love Jesus. He's my personal Savior. Now, why would God put somebody with 2,000 empty seats right behind me to make that message? Why? Because God knew that I needed a sword through my heart. And as those words came out, all I can tell you was if the, Jesus took a sword and plunged it through my heart. And here's what I heard in my mind. You see, you can speak in courtrooms all over America. 
you can go and make speeches all over the place and not once have I ever heard you publicly say that about me. I was convicted. That answers your question. Meaning, I was saved. I was saved before. But now God had convicted me again. And that's what we pray for. We pray that God continues to sanctify us. And what does that mean? It means that the issues that didn't necessarily bother you so much yesterday, you're a Christian, but you didn't have your sensitivities raised. But through prayer, through Bible study, through worship, as your sensitivity in the pilot light in your life gets turned up and gets turned up and up, and you get more on fire for God, the things that you didn't feel that good about before, now God puts a compulsion on you. And that's the answer to your question. And that's what happens. Yes, I was saved. Yes, I was saved. But God had called me to do something else. I didn't understand it. But I knew one thing. I wasn't worthy where I was. And I had to address it. And so that's what I'd say to you. That's the kind of prayer you need to make for your own life. That God direct you and give you this feeling that there's a need for you in the world. What does he want you to do? And that's why we study Paul. That's why we do this. We study this because this is the template for our life. This is what we want to see, what we want to share with our children. And so for him, he knew that his life was not worth living, was not worth living at all if he did not serve God. Can you imagine? It's not worth living. I can't live. I can't look at Jesus' face. He saw me. He spoke to me on Damascus. And when he does that, when he speaks to you like that, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to go to prison. I don't care if I die. I want to take with you. I want you to turn so you get an understanding of, of the depth of his feelings to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 2. Verse 14. There he is again writing. I mean, the entire New Testament is essentially Paul. Two-thirds of the New Testament is Paul. You want to understand what, what part of our theology is Paul? Two-thirds of the New Testament are writings from Paul. Verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Can you imagine? In other words, when we are the kind of Christians that he wants us to be, just being in our presence effectively gives off an aroma to the world of Christ. Gives off an aroma. You don't even have to open your mouth. They see you. They know you. They know you go to church on Sunday. They see you leave early in the morning and then you come back late. They see you go out to the week. You don't think that they notice? They notice. You may not want them to notice, but they notice. They see you. And look what he says, the aroma. The aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of him for verse 15. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one 
we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Can you imagine? When I think about the call that God has made on your life. Yeah, you're saying to me, Brother John, I don't know. I'm not, I, I can't go to Africa. I can't go to India. But you know what? You go back home to your house. You see your children. You see your spouses. You see your siblings. You play golf. You see your golf buddies. You go to work. You see your fellow employees. You come to this BLG. You see your fellow people in this church. Are we spreading the aroma of Christ? And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Oh, God, please underline that in your Bibles. We do not peddle the word of God for profit. Unlike the world. Unlike many people on television. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. That's the essence of what this is about. You're being sent by God. You may not have signed up for it. You don't even realize it, but you are. Your very essence is spreading the aroma, the aroma of Christ. And it's a sweet fragrance to those that are being saved. And it's the smell of death. It's the smell of death to others that have rejected. Yes, Mary. Yes, Rob Bell. Rob Bell, the... Uh, uh, he said, the choice of people are giving the definitions of hell, and he said, hell is spending over a week with a bunch of evangelicals. That's how he defined hell. Isn't that wonderful? Rob Bell said... Well, he, he defined hell, as you know, Rob Bell is the pastor of the Mars Hill Church in Flint, Michigan. And Rob Bell has written a book, uh, effectively, in which he has refuted... <laughs> our understanding of what hell is. Uh, and by the way, it's not my understanding. It's what Jesus says hell is. Okay, let's make no mistake about it. Okay, make no mistake about it. It's very clear. Jesus is very clear. He doesn't just say it once or twice. He says it multiple times. Paul speaks of it. Hell is a place. And now this brother has basically said, and this is apostasy. And we're going to find out about it. We're going to hear about it. Paul is warning the Ephesus church, beware of apostasy beware of brethren in your midst who will get up and basically forswear the gospel will create a new gospel and you will see it here in this chapter we're going to study it because in this very chapter he's going to begin to address the issue of false doctrine in the church and mary lee it just didn't happen now okay it's not just rob bell in this church it rose up even in the first century church, even while Paul is alive, and we're going to study that, where people in the church at Colossae, in the letter to the Colossians, and we'll talk about it, in that church where they started to worship angels and pray to angels and ask angels to intervene and said that you didn't just have to pray to Jesus, you could pray to others for intervention. And that Jesus didn't come uh, in a human body. He was here only as a God and therefore did not suffer as a man. Oh, please. That is the lie of Satan. Satan wants you to believe that. 
Satan wants you to believe that Jesus didn't suffer like you suffer and wasn't subject to the same temptations that you suffered. Don't you see the lies of Satan? And the biggest lie of Satan, Mary Lee, is there is no hell. You understand? There is no hell. And now this brother, uh, who has a big church, has now concluded that there are many ways to God, not just through Jesus. And so if you want to know what the litmus test is, here's what the litmus test is. You don't need to have a theology degree. You don't have to call me up and ask me. I read his book. Here's the key, here's the key litmus test. If someone says that there are other ways to God other than Jesus Christ, that's from Satan. Okay? Make no mistake about it. There is only one way to God. It's through Jesus. He told us about eight separate times. He made it very clear. Don't ever, ever, ever get involved with theology like that. That's apostasy. And he's going to warn this church about this very issue, about what happens when we, these false prophets come in and change the gospel of our Lord Jesus and change what we've, what we've been taught. This is a big danger for the church. And he preaches this right here early on to the Ephesian elders. And what I'm going to say to you is this. I look at you people as spiritual leaders. When I say the Ephesian elders, I look at the people in this group. People in this group have been, less to, have been blessed to have great spiritual discernment. You people have spent, many of you have spent many years studying the Bible. You are spiritual leaders. I don't care that you're sitting in those seats and I'm standing up here. You are a spiritual leader. God is using you to be a spiritual leader in your home and in your town and in this church. He's called you to so many different things. And so when I look out at you, I believe, and this is how God looks at you. God looks at you, at you as if you are emergency medical technicians for the spirit. And when this class is over and some of you travel north, that's what he's sending you north to do. And you know what my prayer is for you? My prayer for you is that God gives you boldness. Boldness. So that when the moment comes, when the eternal appointment comes, when God puts somebody in your life, and it will come when he will set somebody, something will happen, some issue, and somebody will come in front of you that needs to hear from a Christian, from a message from a Christian, that God will give you the boldness to speak because you know what to say. Your life is that testimony. Now speak up on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and save these people from death. Amen? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you've been here with us in this class, Lord. I, I'm so grateful for these dear people that come from all over this town to this Bible study, Lord. I ask you that you bless them and you protect them in every way, Lord, with all of their needs. And also, Lord, I ask that you bless these words that we've heard today, that you multiply it in our heart, that we apply it this week in our life, that we grow with you, that we sanctify ourselves every day, Lord, as we put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.